Well, welcome this morning as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians today in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And we will in a moment read the scripture. And then I hope uh, some of you have tried your hand at writing a three or four sentence summary of our passage. And you can share that with us. And then uh, we have three very interesting discussion questions. The first one, uh, what are the sins of verse 10, 11 have in common that Paul causes them to combine them like that into, into sort of a category of sin? It's a little shocking. It was to me when I read through that and, and you have this really awful thing that he's addressing and then these other things that are awful too, but do they belong together? Well, Paul thinks they do and we'll talk about why that is. Uh, second discussion question what does it mean? Oh, and I gave you the answer, number one, too, so it ought to be easy. Uh, number two, what does it mean to deliver someone to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? And what is the purpose for this? And then finally, we'll talk about the leaven metaphor and its application. So, and then we'll go through the, through the outline and uh, verse by verse through chapter six, or excuse me, chapter five of First Corinthians. So let's read the scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this instruction that we have in your word. I pray that we might understand it, that we might take it to heart, and we might do what it teaches us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
summary statement. Who wants to share theirs? Yes. Just one word, accountability. Okay, good choice of word, accountability. Uh, The Corinthians were not holding this person accountable for their sin. They were tolerating it and tolerating it in a boastful manner, weren't they? It's like they were... um, it's like they were saying, well, we're saved and we can sort of do anything now because we can't lose our salvation, right? So uh, there, there was a boasting and a pridefulness about it rather than, as Paul says, a mourning about it. He says, you must hold such a person accountable. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Any other summary? Very good. That captures the essence of it pretty good, I think. Let me uh, share with you what I have here. It's very similar to what Edward has. The Corinthian believers were tolerating a person among them who was committing an act of sexual immorality, namely incest. And instead of mourning the situation, they are boasting in their liberty. Even though Paul is not present physically, he pronounces judgment and directs the church to assemble and deliver the sinner to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might be saved. Paul uses the metaphor of leaven to warn against the influence of tolerated sin spreading through the entire church. He warns them again not to associate with professed believers who are sexually immoral or characterized by ongoing unrepentant sin. Okay, let's look at our discussion questions then. Question number one, with the answer given here. So Paul begins this chapter writing about sexual immorality. Then in verses 10 and 11, he seems to expand this rebuke to include the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, etc. You'll remember he says in verse 9, I wrote you a letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with him. So, what do those sins have in common? Here's this sin of sexual, great sexual immorality. And and you would think Paul would continue on addressing that, but now he brings in uh, greed and swindling and other sins like that. What do they have in common? They're all lust of the flesh. They're all lust of the flesh. Okay. They are that. Uh, Chuck? They're habitual. They're, they're things that you, uh, you didn't just do a once and fall off a wagon or something. This is something you're known by. Right. 
Yeah, very good. These are not uh, these are not one-offs. I didn't just get mad at somebody and and yell at them, and 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 that's a sin. But I uh, I swindled somebody out of money, something like that, and and I do that. The verbs that are used here are present tense verbs, meaning it's ongoing. Uh, there's an ongoing swindling. In other words, the people are characterized, as Chuck said, they are, they are habitual sins. Uh, the people who are idolaters and swindlers and greedy um, are characterized by those sins, as is the person who is sexually immoral, characterized by ongoing sin, unrepentant, unconfessed, unmortified sin in their life so that when people see them coming, they say, oh, that's that greedy person. He's probably up to something to get somebody else's money. Or there comes a swindler who's greedy and he's already done it. What else do you see there? Uh, What do these sins have in common? Well, they're ongoing. Uh, That causes Paul to combine them. And then verse 11 is the key to that. And there's a second thing here in verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or any of those other things. What's 11 say? They infect the whole body. They infect the whole body. Uh, the sin, as we'll see in a moment, is like 11. Spreads throughout. Uh, Brendan. Brother, he's a person who professes at least to be a Christian. Right. So here's someone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are a member of the local body, the church, and yet they are engaged in sin that is characteristic of those people who are outside the church, who have never made a profession of faith. So this is what really makes it so so grievous an error and so grievous a sin is this is someone who professes to be a Christian who is doing this. Now, I know over my uh, lifetime I have encountered a number of people who are in such situations, um, who are engaged in some form of ongoing sin, yet they claim to be a Christian. And they refuse to, to uh, hear pleas to stop it. They continue in it. And, and it's like they're saying, but, you know, once saved, always saved. Don't you hate that? Uh, that's, that's a mischaracterization of that doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, yes, the saints will persevere, but they will persevere. Uh, they will heed the warnings of Scripture. They will, with the help of the Holy Spirit who indwells them, uh, so order their lives, as Galatians put it, they will keep in step with the Spirit. And they will endeavor to better themselves and become more like Christ, the process of sanctification. Maybe, you know, erratic. You drew a line, the line's going to be upward, the, the slope is upward, it may have dips. But 
it comes back and it, it keeps getting higher and higher. So as we progress in our Christian life, we become more Christ-like. That's the nature of the Christian life. Um, uh, Rick is, has said several times, I've heard him say, that he's embarrassed about the Rick of 10 years ago. And he expects 10 years from now to be embarrassed about the Rick of now because it's a progressive uh, sanctification where a person becomes more and more like Christ. Uh, this person doesn't seem to recognize that. They're resting upon a false assurance of their salvation that they may not have if they're continuing in these characteristic sins, sins that characterize unbelievers. Okay, let's look at two. Paul says that they are to deliver such a person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? And I gave you several verses to look at. And then the question is, uh, according to verse 5, what is the purpose of this? So what does it mean to deliver to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? And those verses there give you some ideas, some contrasting ideas, a dichotomy that exists there. So what did you find when you read those verses? What does it mean to deliver someone to Satan? We would call that excommunication, by the way. Anybody look up those verses? What, what did you find? Uh, in looking at Ephesians 2, 12, um, they're saying that we've come alive in Christ, that you've now had your heart circumcised right. um, through Jesus. So you, you can't go on sinning. I mean, you just, it, it's better that you, you, you physically be dead than to be spiritually dead. Right. Um, okay, yeah, Ephesians 2, 12 says, remember that you were at that time, separated from Christ before your salvation. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you see the contrast there between the way a saved person is now and the way they were before? And he's saying, deliver this person out into that realm where they were before because that's how they're behaving and it's habitual, it's ongoing, uh, present, unconfessed, unrepented of sin. So deliver them out there. What else did you find out? Yes. Those who are the ones who deliver to Satan are delivering back to the master, the one who actually right. whose name you do bear, rather than for you to defraud the name of Christ, right. which is really what's at stake when you say it, it's not just that you're indulging in these sins. You, you're doing it in the name of Christ, right. which is even worse. So, um, and, and I think honestly, it can be a mercy in, in doing that because it, it's the opportunity for the Lord's discipline to work. Yeah, and that's the purpose here, the answer to the question, the purpose. 
it is to bring that person to salvation. This is never punishment. Uh, it's, it's not being punished, but it's remedial. Uh, now, our polity here uh, is, is three steps. It's not just immediately excommunication. First step is warning. So we might call someone before the session and warn them, stop doing this. You're, you're, um, you're in effect denying Christ by your actions. Stop it. If they don't listen, the next step is to suspend them from the sacraments. They can't take the Lord's Supper. If they still insist, the next and final step is excommunication. They're put outside of the church, into the realm of Satan. Uh, and again, it's, it's for remedial purposes. Each of these steps is to try to bring the person up short and make them think about what they're actually doing. And if they are a, an elect, if they are a member of the body of Christ from eternity past, then they will conform. They will ultimately confess their sin, repent of it, um, mortify it, and, and seek to rectify uh, the situation that exists. So each of those steps has that purpose, a remediation, and to, to bring the person to salvation, uh, either, uh, either maybe for the first time, if they haven't been saved, they've just made a profession, maybe the profession is they really are, uh, really were saved, and now they've, for some reason, fallen into one of these gross ongoing sins. And they have to get that out of their life. The only message that we really can have for any person who calls themselves a brother and who is engaged in ongoing habitual sin that, that characterizes those who are outside the church, the only message we have for them is those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They need to realize that they are putting their soul in mortal danger by behaving like this. It's not characteristic of, it's of also Christians. It's a reflection on the whole body. Yeah, and that, I think, is a greater sin. Yeah. It, it's not the sin itself. It's the, the greater sin is you're claiming to be a brother, and it casts a, a bad light on all the true believers and the church as a whole causes those who are still in the world to make fun of and despise the church. Yes. Right. Right. If they're getting away with it, then maybe I can do that too. Um, and it's, um, well, yeah, Brendan. This, this may be an obvious We've just heard that it's, it's, it's a blight on the church and the reputation of the church, and certainly that's true, but I think it's easy for us to think that the reason we do church discipline, the reason we do uh, excommunication is because of our reputation as Second Presbyterian or as the PCA, uh, but it's important to remember that really at the, at the head of that church is the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, right. and we, we practice church discipline because it's a vindication of His glory, His honor, His justice, uh, that 
uh, he is the one who ultimately uh, receives the affront when Christians live, when people who profess to be Christians live in a way that is not in accordance with the gospel. Uh, the, the shame of all that doesn't come just to us. Comes to Christ. It comes to Christ. And, you know, the, 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 the Gentiles, they blaspheme God and Christ on account of, uh, of the, the sinful uh, unbelievers, you know, these people who profess Christ. It's blas- it leads to blasphemy of Christ. That's why we do church Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Thank you for that, Brendan. And, uh, you know, if you see this in the news, the media never fails to pick it up and report it when, when it's a pastor who's, you know, and, uh, and, and they delight in reporting that. And it is, as Brendan said, uh, it is a, an offense to Christ, and it it causes the people in the world uh, to hold Christ in derision. Yes. yes. Right. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, we've had people here, you know, that we have excommunicated, and they come back and they repent, and they are welcomed back to, into the church because they have repented and they are mortifying that sin, and and they're they've confessed it and they are forgiven for it by God and by the church and welcomed back in. Uh, they have been restored, so uh, restoration. Uh, the honor of the church, most of all the honor of Christ. Uh, and, and that's why we practice church discipline. Okay, um, let's go on and look at number three. Paul rebukes the Corinthians for arrogance and boasting in their misconstrued liberty in Christ. And he uses the metaphor of leaven. Uh, explain this metaphor and its application. That's the first part of this question. Now, Paul says that they are arrogant and they are boasting. And I have known people like this who have made a profession of faith and then they fall victim to this once saved, always saved thing, uh, which is a mischaracterization, a dangerous mischaracterization it's common, it's prevalent, 
in what we call the evangelical church, once saved, always saved. But it's the perseverance of the saints, and it is with the help of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification that and, 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 the, and the means of grace that believers persevere unto the coming of Christ and are found uh, and presented faultless before the throne at his coming and his presentation of, of them before the throne of grace. So here someone is saying, and, and apparently this was sort of characteristic of the, of the Corinthians, who most of whom at least were, were genuine believers, but they had, I think we called it one week, a, an over-realized eschatology. They thought they were already arrived. And and there and and it's this once saved always saved thing. They they had liberty in Christ, and those they could act on certain things without any consequences to it. All of this growing out of their unique geography that allowed them to control access north, south, east, west by land and by water, which made them wealthy, which gave them greater wealth than the typical city of the Roman Empire, and that resulted in their, uh, in their unique uh, social order, of their unique culture resulted from that. Sounds a lot like this country to me. Uh, we are unique, have been unique uh, in, in our geographic location. Uh, we were spared from wars except, you know, that one that we fought among ourselves, but but other wars, you know, it's hard to invade the, it has been hard and historically, maybe easier now. But, and so we have that unique position. We have this unique economic situation where the, the nation was an economic engine and we were more wealthy than most nations of the earth. And this produced a, a uh, an attitude that we are better and we can do things that other people can't do. And that's what's happened to the Corinthians here. And, and they have brought in this attitude with them into the church when they were saved. But now they're saved. And now they're in the church. And, and, the, and the sin hasn't just come along with them, which you would expect until they understand fully. They're now bringing it in. They're inviting it in. Again, sounds like today, does it? Where we see church after church uh, positioning themselves for not how can I reach the culture, uh, how can I accommodate the culture? And the culture is coming into the church uh, to the church's detriment. Uh, they think they're doing good and they're actually doing great harm to the church in, in doing that. So a lot of similarities between the Corinthians in our situation today. But Paul here uses the metaphor of leaven. What's that all about? What's the application of, of growth? It spreads, yes. To really feel your faith and to live to live your life. Right. 
Okay, good. Now, it, it's the idea of the spread, as you said, that I think is important. Leaven, and they didn't have yeast, I don't think. So this is fermented dough, and you save some dough from the last lump. And when you make a new lump of dough, you, you mix that in, and the leaven spreads throughout the dough. Now, how does he apply that to sin in the church, Chuck? Leaven is a metaphor for sin. Yes. So, uh, he says there are leaven, the true part that we were speaking about earlier, that's the unleavened part. That right. Hasn't been corrupted yet by the wolves. Right. So the, the leaven is almost always in Scripture a reference to the sin, the fact that it spreads. And so, uh, as was said earlier, if that's tolerated in the church, it tends to corrupt the church and it tends to spread. And so that's the metaphor uh, that we have here. Uh, and then why does he say that the Corinthians really are unleavened? You touched on it, Chuck. Yeah, they really are converted, aren't they? This is another indication that the Corinthians are saved people. And... Uh, they're mistaken. Uh, they're, they misunderstand. Are they allowing their culture to come into the church and to come into them and they're behaving um, because of their cultural background in ways that aren't really Christian ways, but they're saved. They really are unleavened. Uh, they, have been, they have been saved. And I gave you Second Corinthians 5.17. I like this verse. This is a verse that I sort of grabbed hold of when I was first converted in 1971. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so the Corinthians were in that situation. Um, they were a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, the the new has come, and as Galatians 5.25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also, <coughs> excuse me, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, they are unleavened bread. They're a new creation. They need to act that way and not allow this leaven to come into the church and spread. The, uh, the illustration, obviously, is this idea of growth. And you mentioned that it's mostly used negatively. There are occasions where it's used positively. But I think one thing that's important for us to do is to probe beneath the illustration and understand how this actually happens in the church in the context of discipline. Paul is essentially saying that failure to act is a form of action uh, when, when a church or a court of the church, whether that's the general assembly or the presbytery or the session, fails to act in cases of discipline, uh, it is a, a tacit form of, uh, of permission. And the perception then becomes amongst the body, these things are okay to do. This guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and so I can sleep with my mother-in-law. Uh, right. This person's doing this sin, and so it's okay if I do that too, because he's not being disciplined. And so we need to keep that in mind. How does that happen? It's because it's a tacit permission. Yes, good, thank you. And, and we have that going on right now in the PCA 
where there was a failure to act on something very important. And, uh, and we have some uh, overtures that are being voted on by Presbyterians now that will better that situation and make it easier to, to appeal the situation where a Presbytery failed to act. Uh, because as you said, that failure to act is really an action. It's really an action. It's a negative action. Okay. Pray, f you, you may know if you pay attention to the uh, denominational news, then you may know what that uh, situation is over the uh, Revoice Conference and the failure of, the, of that presbytery to take action and, and, and the mechanism for appealing to that was stunted, blinded, uh, cut off. Uh, the new uh, overtures, if they are adopted by, is it two-thirds? Two-thirds of the presbytery. It's passed the General Assembly, requires two-thirds of the presbytery now. That will make the mechanism for appealing that and, and calling it up from that presbytery that failed to act make that much easier. Pray for that, that it, that it works. And, th and those things are passed. Okay. Let's look then at the outline. Four words, I think, uh, pretty well capture this, uh, this chapter. Problem, judgment, festival, reminder, those four words. We see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, there's sexual immorality, as we've seen among them in verse 1, and there's tolerance and arrogance that grows out of their cultural situation and their uh, their overestimation of their own spirituality that allows them to tolerate that and put up with it. And they're, they're boasting about their liberty if we lead, uh, read between the lines here. Uh, and, and everything that's gone before in this chapter too, they're boasting in that fact. They're, they're arrogant about it. In verses 3 through 5, we see judgment. And Paul says here that he has already pronounced the judgment upon them. In verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Uh, literally, literally there, Paul is sort of saying, on the one hand, I'm not there, but on the other hand, I am too. I'm there in the spirit because I founded this church. I planted it. Uh, I have you all in my heart. And I can't help but be there in the spirit. And so it's just as if I am physically there. And I have therefore pronounced judgment upon this person. You need to take action um, and, and commit him uh, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. <clears throat> Again, the destruction of the flesh is not necessarily bodily injury. Physical injury could lead to that could lead to that if they persist in it. Oftentimes, God's temporal punishment for sin is more sin. Just allow, all right, if you want to do that, go ahead and do it and see what happens. So there could be some physical, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary pur purpose is, is remediation and satisfying the honor of the church and of Christ. Purpose is salvation of that person's soul. And Paul says, uh, so that we might 
his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's not saying you have to wait until the day of the Lord for him to to be saved, uh, to be called back uh, into behaving the way a Christian ought to behave, but rather that's going to take place right now as a result of this church discipline. And then Paul is confident that he will see that person on the day of the Lord when the Lord comes once again. So the remediation is for the purpose of right now uh, that this takes place. Festival. What festival is in in mind here in verse 6? The Passover, yeah. Except it's not the Passover as the Jews uh, celebrated it, where where it was part of the... uh, of the judgment upon Israel, uh, upon Egypt, for refusing to let Israel go, and they killed the lamb or the or the kid, and they put the blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of the Lord came to take the firstborn, the angel passed over those residences that had the blood on the door. And so it's the Passover. Now, Christians, according to this, have a Passover too. And he goes on to say, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover. Christ is our Passover. His blood has been applied to us. And God in his wrath against sin passes over us. And so we have a Passover too. Part of the preparation for the Jewish Passover was to eliminate all leaven. They went on a search for it. Not any up here in this cabinet hiding over in the corner. Get rid of all the leaven. They searched for the leaven, they got rid of it, and they had only unleavened bread. Leaven being the symbol for sin. And so they are, uh, they are preparing for the Passover. And now he's making application to the Christian Passover here, who is Christ, who has died for our sins, that we ought to cleanse out the sin that is among us. Personally, corporately, we cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Then we have the reminder in verses 9 through 13. Uh, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Which letter is that? I wrote you in my letter. So it's not this one. We don't know. He apparently wrote a letter. He mentions it here. It's this previous letter that he writes. And, uh, and it's been lost. We don't have it. Um, but he makes reference to it here. I wrote you in that letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he is reminding them of, of something that has, uh, that has come to his attention. And, uh, and, and he's addressed it in this previous letter. And now he's reminding them again of this. Uh, and he goes on to say, this is, I, I'm, I'm not telling you don't associate with worldly people who are characterized by the sin. 
if that's what I meant, you couldn't step outside of the door of the church. You'd have to cloister yourself somewhere. And, and it would manage to seep in even there, I'm sure. But you, you would have to disassociate yourself altogether from the world because that's how the world is characterized by those things. He says, I'm talking about the church. These are people who profess to be Christians and they are behaving in an unchristian manner. And, and it's the judgment of the immoral in, in verses 12 and 13. Um, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those outside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those. Purge the evil person among you. Purge the evil. Now, the application here, I think, is that we need to prepare our Passover. That's an ongoing process. We are engaged in the confession of sin when we become aware of it. We repent of that sin. We seek God's forgiveness and receive it. Um, we, we mortify sin in us. And we act in church discipline to remove that sin from the body as a whole. Uh, and we, we rectify the situation with the dishonor that's being done to Christ. Uh, a reflection on the church and, and primarily to Christ uh, from those outside the church. Uh, we need to act upon that. Reading 2 Corinthians again, that verse that, that I love so much. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We need to make sure that we and all of us act as if we are a new creation. As Galatians 5.25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching in your word. May we take it to heart. May we think upon it this coming week and always. May we take the steps that we need to take to purge out the leaven within us personally and, uh, and to make sure that our church uh, purges out those things that should not be here, of those who are immoral and who are characterized by immorality. I pray that you take help us to take this all to heart, to keep it in mind, and to act upon it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.